Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast. A podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things. All while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. So it's so lovely to see your face. It has been way too long that I have seen your face outside of social media. <laughs> so true. So it's true. It's beautiful to see you. You look so great. Oh, as do you. Oh my gosh. I love every time you're posting and all of the wonderful things you post. And, you know, I'm so grateful, at least for social media, in regards to like we met way back in the day in Dallas. Was it with, was it through Tiffany? I thought it was through like some event that we yeah, did. I think that's what it was. Uh-huh. Yes. Girl, there, you know, there's so many different people and so many different ways you meet. And I'm just like, I couldn't remember. I was like, was it through an event or was it through Tiffany or Maureen? Like I'm trying to like, you know, go through what it's been a long time that we've known each other now. Yeah. But of the people at that event, you most probably are the only person that kind of stuck in my sphere really from that collab event yeah it's because we are so awesome awesome attracts awesome (laughs) (laughs) thanks no I'm I'm so excited I mean I'm so happy about that that makes me really happy and excited and I am just so excited to talk to you about all of the things today and your journey into where you're at and how you're helping you know women and but before we get, do you know what chisme means, by the way? Before we get into the chisme, it means gossip. Yeah, girl. Yes. I'm going to give you a virtual high five right now. Yes. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're both in California, but you're in Northern California. And you're in beautiful Southern California with the good weather. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to try to say something else, but. Yeah, majority of the time it is. Actually, today I was out running a couple errands and it was, I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, beautiful. So yes, I am. But before we get into the chisme, we always start with the wine. So what you got for us today, girl? What you drinking? You know, I had to pull out the Black Girl Magic. Oh, I've been wanting to try it. How is it? It's beautiful. Oh, it's wonderful. And it's from, from the, the McBride sisters. Great. You have other wines under their... Just the McBride sisters, but of course, you know, I like the Black Girl Magic. Of course. I've tried a couple. I tried one of their Sauvignon Blancs because it, but it's like an Australian Sauvignon Blanc. And I, or I mean, a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And I'm not a fan of New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs because they're too grapefruit forward. Okay. I don't like grapefruit. So, 
but I want to try the black girl magic. I want to try some of their reds. So I know I will eventually, but today I'm drinking a 2015 Muevedre from Jose Wine Caves. Nice. And this has become one of, I want to say, I want to say it's become one of my favorite wines, but a lot of the wines that I've drank from my Latine own white brands are really, really good. So it's just one of the many beautiful wines that I have been beyond fortunate to try. So, well, salud. Salud, Brandy. Salud. (laughs) Oh, we have the same glasses, I think. I almost used another glass and I changed my mind. So, yay. Yay. Love, love, love. Well, girl, let's, let's get into it because I know that there's a lot to talk about, but I also know that we could probably talk forever. So (laughs) the longer we wait, the more challenging it's going to be. So let me start by reading Brandy's bio. Brandy is the founder of Operation Growth Institute, a global transformational learning center where people can accept, heal, grow, and transform into the next iteration of their personal and professional best. For over 20 years, Brandy has honed her skill as a strategist, wellness expert, and coach. She helps clients identify their own solutions and specializes in coaching clients through her signature 12 steps to realize transformational growth. She examines how the barriers of generational baggage, fatherlessness, sexual trauma, single motherhood slash fatherhood, racial identity and bias, and failure to keep her clients from living their best life and helps her clients determine the next step. She studied with the Aspen Institute, Kellogg Foundation, Zuckerberg Institute. I always forget how to say her name. Ayala. Ayala Van Zant and the God Squad, Queen Afua and Dr. Leila Africa. She studied for the International Coaching Federation accreditation with Dr. Cherry Carter Scott. Or is it Cherie? Cherie. Okay. I've had people spell it that way in Cherry and some say Cherie. So I'm so excited. Girl, you have done there. And there's more. The full bio will be in the show notes because there is more. We could go on forever of all of the things that you've done. This is just the one aspect of what you're doing. (laughs) I don't know if you're like me, but I can't stand hearing it. No, I am the same. It's one of those things. And I feel you're kind of similar in regards to like, we love connecting people. We love talking to people. We love all that. But when it comes to like the spotlight on us, we would rather have it on other people. And it sounds so weird in regards to the things that you do and with what I do that, yeah, right. You want the spotlight on other people. I'm like, but that's why I have the podcast. The podcast is not about me. It's about other people's stories. I get to share some of my experiences within those, right? That's how you have a conversation, but we're not focusing on me. Like, it's okay. I'm good with that. (laughs) And even when I do like other things, I have my friends saying, well, did you talk about this? Or did you talk? I'm like, no, I don't want to focus on me. (laughs) It sounds so weird as extroverted and everything that as, you know, we both are. That when it comes to that, um, like I said, I feel like you're very similar that you're just like, mm, no, nah, I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for the short version. <laughs> I got you. I got you. <laughs> so I want to start with, because we did meet in Dallas, but I'm not sure like prior to Dallas, where did you grow up and what was kind of like that childhood like girl in, in the area that you're, that you came from? I came from Louisiana. 
if when people ask me where I'm from, I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. That's home for me. That's where I had my formative stage and where my grandmother lived, where my great grandmother lived, where the people who poured into me all lived. I actually was born in California, in Southern California. And my mother was out in California and then came back to Louisiana. And I really feel tied and connected to not only the food of Southern Louisiana, but the people, the accents, the way we move, how we do things. Louisiana, in my opinion, is like a whole other country in the middle of the United States. And so that's that's a place that's very near and, and dear to me. I can say yes. I've been to Louisiana and I've been to other places outside of New Orleans. <laughs> I remember the first time I went even to Shreveport, I was like, that's not the same. Where am I? <laughs> <laughs> that's East Texas. That's where you are. You were in East Texas. Oh, totally. Totally. But I really was like, uh, where am I? Actually, we went because my mom loves to gamble. And obviously in California, there's a lot of places to gamble in Texas. There's not. So we went to Shreveport because she wanted to. Get, so we did all of that on the riverboat gambling and stuff. My mother, my mother likes that too. Huh? She does. My like mother that. likes gambling. And I don't. I'm like, I lose $20. I'm like, okay, that's good. I think the max I will spend is like $40. And I'm like, no more. <laughs> I'm on dime slots or something like that. But definitely it's not my thing. Yes. Well, I, I do have a lot of friends that grew up in Louisiana. And I will say one thing that I appreciate that I really feel is just this sense of, I don't know, I feel, and tell, please tell me, because I'm not from Louisiana. This is just the impression that I get from my friends from Louisiana. There's this like super Southern pride of being in Louisiana. It's very different than Texas because Texas, there people like, I swear they go to baby boot camp. They like hook up something to the brains of the babies when they're in the hospital because there's just this thing. But with Louisiana, it's not that, but it's still this pride, but it's this comfort. That's where truly home is. That's where their heart will always be. That's where they get their comfort from is Louisiana. And then there's also a lot of stigmas in regards to racism instead and start like there's still a lot of like they would say, yes, this is us. But yes, there's still a lot of racism. There's still a lot of this. There's still a lot of that. Like, what was that experience for you in regards to the people that were around you? And they don't call the counties counties. They call them parishes. Absolutely. So, yeah, girl, you know, like I still got that. Remember those things. <laughs> but in the city and in the parish that you were in, was that something that you found very prevalent or was it just such a such a black community that you're just like, this is, these are my people. This is my city. This is how we live. You know, that's an excellent point about Louisiana. We knew for a very long time that there were differences and that we were being treated differently, possibly segregated to certain areas of the city that, that I was from. I don't ever remember a time that I didn't realize that I was quote unquote different from other people. But I also felt like racism was so overt in Louisiana that it was very clear. People would say, I don't like I don't like you or you're the N word or whatever. I don't think it was as failed as maybe it is in other places. And so I felt some comfort in knowing what to expect. 
So you knew where you stood with people because people were very, it was very clear whether or not they were cool with you. And then the other part about Louisiana that's most probably the same all over the South is there were lots of people that were mixed. And so even though it was very clear where you stood, there were also whole families that had people that could pass as white and people that were visibly black. And you knew who your cousins were. Like you knew that there were Richard cousins that were white or that could pass as white. And so it's definitely a unique environment, but I did not grow up in the black part of town. So my mother did. Her generation, they grew up on the black part of town. She wanted to expose me to something else. We moved out to the suburbs. I started going to school initially with all white people. I was the only black kid in my school. Oh my God. really ridiculous. Like for a couple of years, I was the only black person in my school and they started busing and they brought black children from the city out to where I went to school. And that was my first time really being in school with that many black people. And it kind of shook my, my boundaries and like what was, what was normal to me because before then, in, in that particular school, I was very much in love with this little girl called Celia. And I'll, I'll say in love because I thought her blonde hair and the fact that it was long and all that stuff were just the epitome of beauty. And I wanted it. And she was a friend of mine, but I like I wanted to be like Celia. And my mom was like, we cannot press your hair every week so that you can have long hair. You're going to have plaits in your hair. because if you play on the playground they're gonna um your your hair is gonna gonna be over so and I'm not paying for that and it's gonna break your hair off all the things but yeah I wanted to be Celia and then all these black kids came to school and I was like it's not that I did not know them because I went to church with black people but in the school setting I didn't know any of those people who had been bussed out to my school and so I felt like I was supposed to be with them, but I had already been with all of the white kids. And how did that work? And where did I fit? So it was it was an interesting dynamic for me. And I'm sure for them, too. No, I was actually going to ask, like, how did you feel? Because obviously you have friends going to school. You already make these friendships. And then these other kids come in, right, who you're like, oh, I'm not the only one. There's other people that look like me, but does that mean I lose my friends? And this is who I hate. Like that must be, that's like a really hard thing to navigate as a child. Yeah. The second, third grade wasn't the place to start figuring that out. But as I got older, I had to encounter that even more because I spoke like white people to my black friends. I danced like white people to my black friends. And so I was, I was an outcast even at church because they looked at me as living in a certain part of town, having access to certain things. And I didn't comport like my body language. I didn't talk the same way. I didn't do the same things that black kids did. And so there was always this kind of being on the on the edge. And I know people who have way better diction than me and, you know, whose hair is straighter than mine, who had more what I would consider white qualities than me. But whatever it was about me, Black kids didn't always like it. So I I got bullied. I didn't always feel apart. Didn't really trust all of the friendships that I made in the Black community as I was coming up over the years. 
also felt similarly that I was not accepted from white kids either, but I knew them. Like I knew how to navigate that a little bit differently than I knew black people. So it was an interesting dynamic for me personally, but there, you know, there's a strong black culture in Louisiana that if you're a part of it, you, you belong. Yeah. I have like 50 million questions, right? Like now, as you were saying that, but when you were talking about people being overtly racist, my thing has always been around, and obviously this never, this, you can never apply something to a rule to everybody, right? Is that people are afraid of what they don't know. So there's so many people like across this country that have never had an encounter with a Mexican person or a Puerto Rican or a black person, or, you know what I mean? Like anybody of Latin or any of really any other culture. And so they just extract what they hear on the news or whatever they consider the news. (laughs) And then kind of regurgitate that without knowing. And just, there's like a fear implanted. But when you live in a place like Louisiana, you're encountering each other all the time. So it's so like when you were telling me that I could feel my blood getting hot because I, my friend tells me, don't try and understand it. You go drive yourself crazy. Cause I'm like, I just don't understand. I don't, I don't get that. Like, how do people think like, and then I start getting really frustrated and she's like, you're never going to understand it. Cause that's not who you are. Like, don't stop trying to understand it. You're driving yourself insane. So when you're saying that, like, I could feel myself getting hot and going like, I don't understand like how people are just like. I don't like you. You're this, you're that. Like, I mean, as kids, it's one thing, you know, you get picked on. I was picked on for being chunky or for being that, for having curly hair. I would get called fro or not and in not being Mexican enough or being to this or to that. But my skin color was never a part of that. So it's so hard for me to understand, like I've not been picked on for my skin color and so it breaks my heart when I hear that. But then it also, and then it pisses me off so bad when I hear people just, just because of that, not liking other people. I just, it's so hard for me to, it's so hard. I can't wrap my head around it. So when you're saying that, I was like, it kind of blows my theory out of the water of you, people just, they don't know what they don't know. But in a place like Louisiana or like Mississippi or Alabama, you do come across it and people do come in encounter and they're just taught from a very young age that people are different because of their skin color. And it just, you know, it's challenging to try to understand it, but it's also challenging just to live it. And I don't think that it's what I've learned over time is that it's not just something that happens in the South or in certain parts of the country, it's everywhere. And it's our, the biases that are part of what we learn, part of what our parents teach us because they don't know any better. And so they keep teaching us the same things. I don't remember people from that were Mexican, Puerto Rican. I don't remember any of that when I was growing up in Louisiana. I remember people who were Indian from India or Pakistan, or, you know, there's certain groups that I remember, but that was a deficit for me. You know, I didn't really have strong friendships with people from every culture until I got much older. Like I had to seek some of those cultures out. Yeah, same. I mean, I was, me and my friends were thinking about it. I grew up in a suburb of San Diego. And so we were thinking like, we got together and a lot of my friends, they actually did come from various communities of color. Like my closest friends, they were like Filipino, Vietnamese, other Latinos, 
and it was so funny because when we were as adults, you think about it. When you're kids, you're not thinking about it, right? You're just kids and whatever. And we were thinking as adults, this was um, like a month ago or so. And we we're saying how we just I kind of all kind of found each other and we didn't think about that. And then we were like, oh my gosh, when was the first? Like, I don't think I went to school. I'm sure I went to school. I didn't have a black friend until I got into middle school. And I'm still friends with her. She lives in Chicago now. Her name is Latricia. So like that was my, and I still like, we were like, cause we were trying to think like who, oh my gosh, I don't think it was until middle school. And you don't realize that until, until you really think about it. So yeah, I, I totally agree. And I don't, it's, it's really crazy. It's so interesting. What kind of emotional support did you get when like in regards to balancing those two things in regards to the black community and the white community? Like, did you get any kind of emotional support at home? Was it something you were able to talk to your parent, your parents to, or anything like that? Talk to them. My parents were definitely engaged with me, but I don't know that we had the words because we were in the midst of doing something that my parents hadn't even done. My parents lived in segregated areas in Louisiana. They weren't allowed to live in the white part of town or go to school with people who were white. They went to college at HBCUs. Like that's, that's what they had access to. So they were breaking barriers at work and we were breaking barriers at school. And all they would tell us was that we had to be better, twice as good work twice as hard, not even thinking about the fact that our excellence or the way that they were raising us was going to cause us to be looked at poorly by people who did look like us. I don't know if they, if that even registered, it most probably was just, well, some people like you and some people won't and Mm -hmm. deal with that. Did your parents have the conversations with you that I know many Black parents have with their kids, especially their sons these days? Did they have those types of conversations in regards to how to navigate being pulled over, how to navigate in certain areas, what to do? Like, was Or was it really just like some people are like, because I feel like, like those conversations, I know a lot of my friends now have those conversations and they didn't even feel like they necessarily got those conversations from their parents, but now they're having to have these conversations with their kids. I don't remember those conversations in our household, but part of it is because I had two stepbrothers, two brothers who live with me, but by the time we would have gotten cars, we moved to different places. I think when you're walking out of the house, driving on your own, that changes some things than when you're just going to school on the bus or what have you, where you wouldn't really wouldn't encounter the police in that way. And we didn't live in a black part of town. We lived in in the white part of town. The conversations that we had were around instances, like things that actually happened. So there's a private school in the back of our neighborhood that was all white. And there weren't very many families of color that lived in our neighborhood, but there, there were some, like we knew who they were. And we were in the back of the neighborhood riding our bikes, which we did all the time. Um, and they threw stuff at us and called us the N-word. And it was the first time that I had experienced that. I, I don't know if it was the first time my brother said, I assume that it was, but it was because we were in their, their space and they didn't understand why we were there. We were living in this neighborhood. We shouldn't have been able to afford, et cetera, et cetera. And then there was a conversation, right? It w- there wasn't a, a conversation to set it up, but 
now it feels like things have changed. And, you know, I listen to my elders and people from back then and understand how challenging it was from enslavement forward for us. And they say we've made so much progress and we're doing so much better. And I believe that that's true. But then I also believe that we're kind of sliding back into things that really weren't going on, at least in in the spaces where I lived. Mm -hmm. It feels like there's this rage now in the suburbs. People are mad. Like, how did you get here? Why are you here in the suburbs? When we, you know, we've been edging into the suburbs for a while now. People are real mad about it, which I think would would prompt those conversations, even though I don't remember us having to have them when when I was younger. Yeah. God, that's just mm, let me shake myself because I'm just <laughs> <laughs> but it's the same for for other communities. Yeah, I mean, I think that and I think everybody experiences different individually and as a community as a whole, everybody has their own experiences, right? So, you know, I know that I've had my experiences, particularly with my last name. Like if people don't see me, there is a very, there's a ton of assumption in regards to who I am, what I can or cannot do, all of these things when they see my name. Cause my name is like very Mexican (laughs) and, you know, and I've been in rooms where people didn't know I was there asking if I spoke English. She probably didn't write this resume. She probably had somebody do it for her. Probably doesn't even speak that great of English. No. Yeah. I've And I'm like, do you not realize you are in a public space? Like you're about to call me back. Like it was just crazy of, of things that, that you hear. And, but I don't know if anybody's like directed it to me. I mean, at this day and age, I feel like somebody would, if I say something in Spanish, yeah, I'm probably going to get told to go back to Mexico or, you know, which is ridiculous. It's so crazy. But, you know, I feel like as an adult, I have those resources and those people in that community I can talk to. As a child, I would, I don't know what I would have done, to be perfectly honest, if I would have gone home. I mean, I did get called a bimbo by my high school teacher before. She didn't want any Mexicans and any bimbos on her squad like me. Well, she didn't stay Mexicans, but it was very obvious. She was like very obvious. She was racist because she would treat particularly the girls really horribly, but straight out said to my face, and I'm 13 years old, maybe 14 at the time. She didn't want any bimbos like me on her cheer squad. Oh my gosh. Who tells that to a teenage girl, right? So I've had different, like very different instances, but is that what planted the seed in regards to all of the things that you're doing? I mean, do you look back and go, or like at what point, because you, everything that you've done is to serve other people, whether you're working in government, whether you're working in nonprofit, like your career has been really focused on helping others. Do you think that's where the seed was planted in regards to all of that? I think feeling like an outsider does help with that. I, one of the words that I would have used before today was that I like to advocate for other people. Like I, I care about what happens to them. But being an outsider as a Black woman with white people, being an outsider as a Black woman with Black people, it definitely had something to do with it. And it also came from my parents. My parents are both servants. We grew up in the church. We went to church 
don't know how many times a week. We, my dad was a really active with the Boy Scouts. My mom did all kinds of helping of people. In fact, she wouldn't let me play the dozens with people. You know how you cap on people when they say crap about you? My mom wouldn't let me do that. And she would make me apologize to people. And it used to enrage me because I was quick-witted and I I had comebacks. So you say something, I'm going to say something back. And I'm, I'm Why dull. Me? Why are you holding back my greatness? <laughs> like I could have been a hip hop. I could have been something else, right? But she would not. There was one specific moment where this girl, um, I made her cry because she had been really nasty. I think it was kind of this cyclical thing. Like people have been talking about her. And so she would just talk about everybody because she felt so bad. And I said something and she made me go over there to her house with her mama and apologize. Oh, dang. You, she really made you apologize. It wasn't like, just go say yourself. No, I'm going with, oh, dang. No, no. So there was always service. There was always doing things for other people, recognizing that we had, but everyone didn't. And we had a responsibility because of whatever we had regardless of how small or how big it was, we had a responsibility to help other people. And so, yes, um, my parents both worked for the government, like the services is there. And I'll even go a step further because I know more about my background. Now, my grandmother and my great grandmother um, worked in the homes of white people. They were domestics. And so I grew up with my grandmother who was, she worked at a bowling alley that was owned by the family that she had once worked for in their home as a domestic. So when they bought the bowling alley, they brought her there and she cooked in the bowling alley and um, did some other things there. So I always like no one in my family did anything else but serve. Wow. When, you know, start knowing those things, I feel like it kind of opened your mind in a totally different way. Right. When you went to school and when you went to, to college and everything, did, did you know that's what you were going to focus on or was it something that came later that you realized after going to school and working in corporate America or did you, were you like from the go? No, this is what I want to do. I want to give back. This is where my calling is. This is where my heart is because you do it in different ways, obviously, but is that something that you always knew you wanted to do? No, it's something that I had learned to do. And I was a jack of all trades. I did a lot of things, but it was something that I did well. And it showed up as leading. It showed up as leadership. I would take leadership roles so that I could protect the people. So I could help all the people in the group and help them to get what they wanted and that type of a thing. And I think it kind of just fell on me. I don't, I don't know that I consciously served. Of all the things that I did, there are lots of things that I did consciously, but consciously serving other people. I don't know if I sat down and said, oh, yes, on my list of things, <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. It's just something <laughs> that I'm good at. Yeah. When you were going through those things, do you feel like that growing up and being like kind of growing up in an area that was predominantly white, do you think that helped you relate? And to be able to get things done for the community that you were truly trying to help and serve because you grew up in those spaces? Yes. Are you a coach, Jessica? Like, seriously? No. 
as you were saying that, it made me think about the fact that there are just times in my life where I remember feeling like, okay, the way that they're delivering this message is the wrong way to get to these people. Because I know these people aren't going to listen to you if you say it this way. So that's part of the reason why I've done so much communications. Like you can deliver the message if you say it in this way and reach more people than if you say it this way and achieve the desired effect. So then I'm serving by telling you how to better communicate it as well. Yeah. Your ears perk up with certain language, with, with certain language that you identify with. So I even know for me, like if I hear a commercial, I think there's like a commercial for Cox communications where it's, they're very white Tino people. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. But but then I hear her speak, like the mom speaking Spanish. And and so of course my ears perk up. I was like, wait, she's speaking Spanish. I mean, obviously we come in all colors and all, you know, whatever. When you're, when you're Latino, you're, it's just, it's not. And I think people sometimes forget, like, it's not your ethnicity, it's your heritage. But I get when people are like, I'm not white. I'm, I get why you say that. Like, I, you know, but like I said, there is a family of white Tinos. But my, my, <laughs> as soon as I heard them speaking, like, and it was Spanglish, like, I am more, no, da, 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 you know, like how you would hear that. And you're like, oh, okay. So I, do you ever feel like you were not, in those spaces and in the things that you've done that you ever had to kind of hide who you are, be less than who you are, because you would be considered like, if you spoke up, you'd be considered like the angry black woman, or you'd be considered, I was, I've been um, told I was, it's a different word for harsh. I can't think, but yeah, I've been told like, I'm too- brash. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I forget what the word that it wasn't brash. It was geez. When abrasive, abrasive, I'm abrasive. I've been told I've been abrasive. (laughs) Yes. And one of my superpowers, I think, is being able to be invisible. But is that a superpower? I think it is. Okay. Tell me why that's a superpower. Because it's like the Trojan horse. I can be invisible until I choose not to be. Got it. And so it's one of the ways that I've reclaimed my history and my story. And so to your, your earlier question, I've used everything. You have to use everything. You know, you use your heritage, you use the people who molded you, you use the experiences to create something for yourself um, so that you can live in your purpose. And so my grandmother, my great grandmother had to clean up behind people and not be seen. And my mother has that. She has it. She can be in a room and no one can know that she's in the room. And while you can look at it as a negative, I look at it as a positive because there's so many times that I'll be in rooms and I can make space for all of the leaders and all of their big heads and bravado and all the things, right? And then when necessary, I can open my mouth and be the biggest voice in the room if I need to, or I can broker a deal or mediate or what have you, but it's one of my superpowers to be able to be invisible. Okay. I see where you're coming from. I don't, I don't think I know how to be invisible. <laughs> so that's, I was like, what do you mean? I don't understand it. Cause <laughs> ever accuse me of that. <laughs> and I think that's I mean. beautiful. I think it's beautiful. That's so funny. So how, cause I know you've been talking about all of these things that you have been doing 
with Operation Growth for a long time now, because I've been following your, you know, just knowing you for a long time and following your journey. I know this is something that you've actually been touching on outside of your your normal day to day for a long time, for like years. How did that end up like all of the things that you're doing, all of the service that you're giving? How did you end up pivoting and really starting that? Because you you have your other, you still have your day job too, right? Because everything she does, I'm telling you, we're not focusing on her day job, but I know what she does for her day job. And I will say like, literally this woman, her job is truly of making sure that people are okay. Like, I'm not kidding when I say that, like her day job is truly like, we need boots on the ground. We need to make sure people are okay. We need to make sure that they have the things that they need to have to be able to survive during certain times of their life. And then now she has operate and she's been having operation growth, which is servicing in a different way and talking about all of these different things. So how did you, with all of the service you already do, decide, well, I'm going to add something else to that and let's do operation growth. (laughs) It's a passion because I wanted, I wanted someone to support me and see me when I was a kid. And it's beautiful that we started off talking about my youth. I wanted someone to be able to notice that I was being treated unfairly or give me the support that I needed, whether it was with little white girls or little black girls. I I wanted that. And because I had the opportunity to understand what it looks like to be in that gap and to be in a space where you're not really supported or understood, to be able to bring that to other people and help them to grow and develop and move into the next iteration of themselves is just something that I feel called to do. It came from, I tell you, Operation Growth came from leading. So I was leading in the National Urban League Young Professionals. I was a national president or somewhere along the journey. I was in a lot of different leadership positions. And I realized that there was more growth in the failings than in the success. Success was easy. You know, you you win, you win, you win, you win. People expect you to win. But when you fall flat on your face in front of a whole bunch of people in the cafeteria and your food flies everywhere, like, what do you do? Who prepared you to fall flat on your face in the cafeteria? Nobody. And then you don't know what to say. You don't know how to respond. You don't know if people are laughing at you, laughing with you. What looks like a leader in that moment when you screw up? And so I realized that there was an opportunity in the failure. And I went back to my mentors and I said, it was Willis and Sophia. I'm sure you know them. I was like, why did y'all not tell me about screwing up? You told me about winning. You told me to be excellent. You told me all these positive things, but you didn't tell me how much my heart would hurt when I failed and what type of composure I would have to have in order to withstand that. And so that was the impetus for the hashtag Operation Growth. My book was supposed to be about being an advocate for young professionals. It was supposed to be about advocacy and the mandate for young professionals to do these things in the community and help other people and serve and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, you know what? No, we need to talk about failing because y'all think y'all have all y'all stuff together. And the moment you hit the floor... (laughs) People don't know how to handle it if they've never done it. I think that's what's such a... like. With the um, the generation after us in regards to like always giving a award for everything, you don't learn, you, you're never learning that you're not a winner. 
And I'm not saying you can't be a winner in life in general, but you're not always going to be on top. And if you never learn that, and I think that's what like sports teaches you being part of different, you know, different things, being part of any team, a debate team or whatever, playing chess, playing checkers, whatever, like learning how to lose was a part of our life, but it, the generation behind us, it was, it has not been a part of their life. So when they fail, I feel like they, they don't have know how to cope. And not to say that it's easy to fail because it sucks. Like I just, <laughs> I'm, it sucks. And, and it's an ego, like, right. It hits your ego. When you fail, you're like, damn, I thought I was doing better. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> But I love that that's like, you want to talk about the failure. You want to talk about those things because no, it is so, so, so true. So you are, have this operation, you have this book, you have like, it's all of these different things. And you talk about how to navigate your personal next level because you don't have to see it or know exactly what it is. Perfection is not necessary. And I'm quoting you here. So talk about that. Like, not knowing because I feel like we're also in this thing, like you have to manifest, you have to see the vision, you have to know what you want. So how do you put that together with what you're saying at the same time is you don't have to see it or know exactly what it is. How do you meld those two, two things together saying, I want a great life, this, but you don't know, you don't know exactly. Like, how do you kind of meld those two things together? Understanding that you're on a journey, you're not going to get there overnight. It's going to take time for you to get there is important. But knowing ultimately where your passion lies, and if we'll say that my passion is service, if you know that your passion is service, then you're doing the work in service. You're serving other people any way that you can. And at some point, you'll look up and you'll say, oh, I'm serving really well in this space. Great. And then you'll build upon that or something will come to you from that work that will take you into the next phase and into the next phase. I don't know that I specifically laid out and said, I want to lead in the government. I want to lead in a nonprofit space. I want to lead and have my own business that serves people where I advocate for people, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't plan it that way, but I kept doing the things that I was really good at. I kept listening to my heart and what I was excited about and continue to do that. And that led to ultimately where I was supposed to be. And it'll lead me to where I'm supposed to be next. Like coaching is an offshoot. It's just an extension. Even though I I wouldn't have told you that I wanted to coach at 18 or 20 or 25. Like at each level, I wouldn't have said that. But it makes perfect sense now. Oh, girl, I can't imagine you like not to be perfectly honest I can't like like I say even though it's not like we we just see each other on social media comment sometimes send a message but just all of the things that I've seen over the years I can't imagine you not doing this to be perfectly honest I remember when you started the hashtag of operation growth and to see how far it's come has just been so awesome I have loved it and like as soon when I a long time ago, but well, as soon as I started the podcast, I wrote down people that I wanted to have. And you were like one of the very first people that I had written down. But there was a lot of things happening at that time. So I was like, I'm a, <laughs> like I can't get involved right now because she's too busy. She's got, she's going crazy. So I'm not going to ask her right now. So see what happens at the right time. 
But I get what you're saying because like one of the challenges I've had over the last few months is in regards to I got laid off and then looking for another job. And I kept looking, you know, I was looking in corporate, I was looking for this, I was looking for that. And what I found is in service. And I was like, damn. And not that I'm super excited. I love it. Like I'm super, super excited. But my friend was like, because that's what you're good at. Like that's where you're best in. It's about serving community and it's about making sure people's voices are heard and listening to them. And my whole career has been spent in that in some capacity in nonprofit and in, in all of these different things, even with the podcast, that's, you know, I had no idea that this was going to happen five years ago. So I get what you're saying when you say that. I feel like just, I feel so like connected with you today, girl. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I get it. I get it. Yes. Yes. You need to come down to San Diego. I so know. <laughs> seriously. I was just like, I love now. One of the other things that you were talking about um, is healing your invisible scars, like at the root of your issue. I think that in order to progress in anything, you need to figure out what those are and start those healing that start that healing. So when people start working with you, when you start talking to people, how do you get, because I think some, oftentimes we, they're invisible for a reason, not just that people, other people can't see them. Sometimes there are things that we can't see ourselves. So how do you get to the root of that? So people can start dealing with that too, so they can level up, so they can deal with that and get to the place where they want to be. Part of it is just listening to people, really, really sitting down and listening to them and what they have to say about whatever is going on with them. Like we can, we can start talking about the sky and get to a sense of some issue that you have with the blueness of the sky. <laughs> why the sky doesn't, you know, well, you know, I like the sky, but the sky only is blue when somebody else is outside. It's never blue when I'm outside. Well, okay. So what's going on with that? <laughs> like, why would you say that? It's always there. And this, this is the reason why I think this work is so important and healing these scars is so important. The scar is always right there under the surface, whether you can see it and view it or not. Other people in your sp your space and your sphere can likely see something. They might not know exactly what it is, but they know that they're experiencing something that, and I want to say that it's a little off, but they know that there's something else there. And through coaching, it's pretty, I guess it's another superpower, but it's pretty, it's pretty clear when you have a conversation with someone, what's going on with them. And you ask probing questions, kind of like the questions that you've asked me to help to narrow down and get to um, what's really going on with someone. And they create their own path forward, their own way to heal the most prevalent scar. And that's the other thing that I think is really important. We may have a lot of them. And in the class, we talk about some ways to identify scars in various areas of your life. But the one that's most prevalent will keep coming up. It'll keep coming up. And if you don't deal with it, it'll come up again and again and again, asking you and giving you an opportunity to, to heal it. Yes, girl. No, it's, it's really true. I mean, I think every conversation I have with every, every person I talk to, I always feel like something else, like something else is revealed, right? I'm like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. Or, oh my gosh, wow, blah, 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 blah. 
the more you know about yourself. And I know I have a lot of scars. Some I feel like I've been able to identify and I'm sure there's things that I have not or that I haven't wanted to. <laughs> that part. Because <laughs> it's scary. Because getting to, I think we we underestimate the fear of getting to know ourselves too well. So for me, during the pandemic, it was, and we're still in this, but you know, when we were in the midst of the chaos, the huge chaos, I really had to learn how to be alone with myself because I am an extrovert. So I do get energy. Like I love being around people. If I'm by myself too much, I'm exhausted. As soon as people are around, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, but then I think too much and I get crazy. Like I can't, and which is that I live by myself. I love living by myself, like all of those things. But when you go, I felt like I was on, yes, we were on lockdown, but like I was in whatchamacallit, like solitary confinement, you know, when you, and you have too much time to yourself and you start one thought turns into, but what if this, what if it turns into splintering into all these ways? And next thing I know, I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to leave my house. Cause I'm going crazy. I'm driving myself nuts. <laughs> So I'm sure there's a lot to unpack there just as far as regards to that. You're not alone. How about that? You're not alone. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. I won't be alone. We, me and my dog spent a lot of time like over seat, like by the beach and everything like that. Because even if I was by myself, just around people around me, I was okay. But when I was totally, totally by myself for that long of a time, oh no, that is not good for my mental health. <laughs> I go too crazy. Talk about some of the tools that you do because you have you do have a free class and I want to make sure we talk about that calling healing invisible scars. So the things that you're talking about are how to listen to the rumblings in your heart, how to identify these invisible scars, strategies to start start healing the scars, receiving tools to care for yourself. Like what happens if you continue to put your healing? Why don't you talk about kind of what all of those things are? How people can you know, join you on this journey if they're ready for that journey. Cause that's another part of it is, are you ready to do that work? Because it's not, oh, it's not easy. Anytime we reveal something about ourselves that we've been trying to cover up, it can almost be re-traumatizing. So how do you go? How do you go through that? How do you walk people through that? It's not easy, but it's, it's also not easy not to. There are prices to be paid for staying where you are. And there, there is work that has to be done in order for you to move through and, and heal those things. But I think it's important for people to realize that on the other side of the healing, on the other side of the work, there's this thing called post-traumatic growth. So the traumas that you experience, the hard times that you experience in your life that you may not want to revisit or unearth to be able to move forward. Those people who've experienced those things then have a better opportunity to just deal with anything that comes to them. They're more resilient. So the growth that you experience after the trauma, after having dealt with it, after moving forward is really beneficial. And so what I try to encourage people to do is take them as they come. So you may be having a really hard time in the office where for some reason you're just mad at your boss, mad at people around you, et cetera, et cetera may not have anything to do with your boss and the people around you. But if the feedback continues to be that you're really angry, if you will, and I hate to use this one because, you know, we get to call the angry women of color, I'm sure a lot. But if you're continuing to get that feedback, abrasive. 
That was that was how they got around calling me like the angry Latina. I'm abrasive. Yeah, that was so much better. Well, you know, angry black woman, angry bee. I like I get all kinds of things. However, if that's coming up for you in lots of places, then that's something that we can look at and try to create a strategy to be able to deal with it and give you your own personalized tools to be able to handle it. When I work with my personal coaching clients, I come up with tools that are tailored to them that they can use even when they're not working with me anymore, just to deal with that continuous thing that comes up. So for instance, if you don't like being by yourself, I'll pick on you for a second. (laughs) There are affirmations that you can say. There are exercises that you can do that will help you to be able to deal with that when you have to, right? You can always go and hang out with people, but there are going to be times in your life when you need to be by yourself. So how do we get you to be able to do that successfully and, and, and be successful in your life overall? And so I think this work is really important. I think it's valuable enough for me to basically give insight on how to do it away for free because what I learned during the pandemic for me, the the big issue that I had was with my daughter and I, we have our own scars and our scars were hitting each other. Like we were under the same roof and we were rubbing up against each other with our, with our issues. And I realized like how many people are stuck at home making decisions to like end marriages and kick people out and (laughs) run away because they're not dealing with their stuff and it's causing friction in their closest relationships. So that's, that's why I do this. Is this something that when you were going and you were struggling or when you do struggle, because the struggle never stops, right? We always have, there's always times, nobody's life is ever perfect. How do you do that for yourself? And does your daughter, like knowing all of the things that you do, does your daughter come to you with any of this? Or she's like, no, I can't. You're my mom. Like, I need to handle this on myself. Because she's a, she's an adult. Like, I don't even understand how you have an adult daughter. When I first, the first time you had posted a picture, I'm like, what? No. <laughs> yeah, she's a, she's a grown person. Initially, she came wanting my help. And then what we realized during the process of of that was that that was challenging because we had patterns of dealing with each other. And those patterns were just exacerbating the problem and not necessarily helping us to heal and and grow individually. So I think it's it's helpful for you to get help outside of the home (laughs) (laughs) with people that don't know you in the same way who can call you on your stuff and there not be a fight about it. Like I'm, I'm a direct coach. Like we have real conversations to help you to get to where you need to be. And it's challenging to do that with your child. Yeah. I'm somebody who, yeah, I'm so grateful to have friends who tell me what I need to hear, not necessarily what that, what I want to hear. Right. And then I will tell my friends, well, do you want, if they ask for my, for my opinion or whatever, I'm like, well, do you want me to say what you want me to say? Or do you want me to say the truth? I give them the option. Like, tell me, what do you want to hear? I'll say what you want to say if that's what you want to hear. But I'm just letting you know, you know <laughs> that I'm saying this only because you want to hear it. That's what you want to hear. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I get it. <laughs> and your book, Operation Growth, An Extraordinary Journey of Maturity, Motherhood, and Black Girl Magic is available 
now, correct? Yes. It's on my website and on Amazon. Oh my gosh. I want to be able to talk to you forever and ever, but I know I can't. And, um, <laughs> Um, we have a little, we have a little bit more time, but I'm going to talk to you like on my own, (laughs) but I want to make sure like, if there's anything else that you want to say, um, that you have the opportunity before I have to make sure you give out your website and your social media and everything. If there's anything that I have not asked or anything else that you want to make sure that people know, please do so. So first of all, continue to watch this podcast and listen to this podcast because it's amazing. And I think the most important thing that I want people to know is that you have an opportunity to change the course of your life right now in this moment. The You don't have to wait until the future. You can make changes on your own with or without having a coach. You can make a decision to do something different in your life. And that's what I hope that Operation Growth inspires. And I hope that you'll take advantage of the stuff that we provide on social media, the blog posts, anything that helps you to be the best version of yourself because that's how we change the world. Yes. And it's, you're never too old and it's never too late and the time is going to pass regardless. So what you decide to do with that time is up to you. Cause if you're like, oh, I'll do it later. Well, what's stopping you from doing it now? If that's what you really want to do, then five years is five years. You get to decide what you do with those five years, right? So true. So, and I used that when I decided to go back to school. I was like, this time's going to pass regardless. If I say I want to get what's preventing me from going back to school and getting my degree, the only thing that's preventing me is me. So I did. And I graduated at 37, almost 20 years after, almost 20 years to the day I graduated high school. (laughs) But I did it. And guess what? Nobody can ever take that away from me. Nobody can ever take that accomplishment in a way for me. I do actually work in what I go to school for. <laughs> in communications. <Hey. laughs> I want to, well, I feel like I'm one of the few people that actually work in what they decided to go to school for. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So how can people, um, we'll put the link to your book to, so people can get, but what is your website and what are your social media handles? And then we'll also put in, um, the link for the Healing Invisible Scars class on the show notes as well. Okay. At Brandy Richard Thompson, you can find me on most social media platforms or some different, some version of it, Brandy R. Thompson on Twitter. And then brandyrichardthompson.com is my website. And I look forward to meeting some of you. Yeah. So make sure to follow her on social media, check her out on LinkedIn. She's always posting some really insightful things on LinkedIn. <laughs> liking everything that she posts. <laughs> and just let me know if you guys get her book, tag her, tag me. I want to hear, like, I want to hear all of those things because I'm going to have to go get the book too. So <laughs> like, damn it, I got growth to do. <laughs> so Brandy, thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing your time with me and sharing your story with me. I got to know you in a whole different way today. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the wine suggestion. Girl, I got you. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, mi gente. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese Med Podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Cheese Med on our website, thewineandcheesemedpodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, 
as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Cheesemate on Instagram and at The Wine and Cheesemate Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheesemate, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.